What's going on with dance and stuff? What's happening with dance and things? What's going on? What's happening? What's going on with dance and stuff? Stuff. Oh, it's August. August something. August 19th? Yeah. August 19th. I'm... I think I'm on the I'm on the Lower East Side. Yeah. I'm east of Bowery. I just had dinner with my dad and his wife, Mayumi, in their little apartment. They're back from Japan for a little while. And um, there are people playing some kind of sport. Looks like soccer soccer and there's someone playing basketball by themselves um just rushing about i've never had like the desire to to do things like that but at any rate it is a warm still evening it's a good time to do outside sports in the dark um fitness as they say the moon is out. It's very big and it has um, a haze around it, which I think means that it's going to rain tomorrow. Is that what that means? It rained a tiny bit today even, um, but the clouds seem to have dispersed. Uh, what happened today? Harry and I went to Ikea yesterday. Now I remember that because that was, that was really something. Um, not been there in some time. I think the last time I went to Ikea, Russell and I, um, got lunch. It was, uh, pre-COVID. A post-COVID Ikea is not, I mean, if you ever thought Ikea was fun in the past, it's really, um, not fun. It's less fun even now. Um, they, it's somewhat more restricted than it was in terms of like the directions you can walk etc and you know how at Ikea they have those like shortcut doors and there seemed to be construction going on so some of that stuff was not happening Um, but we were there on a mission which is that we are doing some studio reorganization trying to make more space and sort of build up along the walls as opposed to just things continually coming more and more out into the room. So we um, landed on a system called PAX, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Um, It is a system I think that's conventionally used as a, uh, to build out walk-in closets or to be a freestanding wardrobe in one's room but we are using the system as a kind of shelving and drawer unit wall shelf thing and I think it's going to be great we we looked at other systems I've I could I can't ordal um elmstad that can't be right something with an E. Um, but at any rate, we landed on the packs for a number of reasons. And um, 
the dimensions are good, the depth is good, the options for drawers and shelves are good. I'm sure the whole thing will be totally flimsy, but um, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna try to get the maintenance people at Abrams to screw the system into the wall. That seems to be, you know, they always say that you have to do that. You know, once you've assembled your IKEA thing, it's always like, and then you secure it into the wall. But I don't think anyone really does that. Do people do that? I've never done that. Um, but this time, I think it will be somewhat imperative that that happens, as it is a workspace. And um, I just want our studio to, you know, be as functional and pleasant as possible. And I do feel like we've made some progress in the last couple of years with a new cutting table that um, came together via, well, this is interesting. Harry and I did a job for Performa a couple years ago, and they had put together all these beautiful plywood tables for the Performa Gala, and I sort of offhandedly, almost as a joke, said, you know, what are you going to do with all these tables when, when you're done? And they were like, do you want them? And I was like, yes. So I recruited my friend Sam Rack, who is the most generous and available of friends in these, you know, sort of difficult uh, project situations. Excuse me, there's a garbage truck. And Sam Rack so generously came with me to retrieve these huge pieces of plywood and somehow we managed to get them to Abrams Art Center from Soho and um, Sam helped me screw heavy-duty casters onto one of them and then I built all of these Kallax shelving systems from Ikea and wedged them uh, between the two pieces of plywood um, which then uh, created this amazing huge cutting surface with full storage and cubbies underneath which has been great for us it's been a really useful system for storing all the fabrics and having a bit bigger bigger and more sturdy cutting surface than we had before and before we were working on a cutting table which Sam Rack also had made for me in my old apartment where I used to do work, but it really was designed for a smaller space and we needed, you know, a bigger surface. So at any rate, Harry and I went to Ikea and this incredible thing happened, which is we did the usual thing where we went through all of the model rooms, which you kind of have to do just to get a sense of things. And we opened drawers and and we asked each other, you know, whose apartment would this be? And so it was all very fun. It's always fun at Ikea for about 20 minutes, right? And we got to the end of the model rooms. We decided it was time for lunch. So we got um, a proper lunch at Ikea of chicken fingers, mashed potatoes, and broccoli and uh, some piece of cake that we split. And so we enjoyed our lunch. I went to the bathroom and did a poop. And then it was time 
to go downstairs and retrieve whatever pieces of the pack system we could get our hands on. And so we went downstairs, we said, we waited in line um, to talk to like an information person because they're no longer allowing people to use like computers to retrieve their bin numbers. Sorry, the garbage truck's back. Um, and so we finally got up to the information people. We said, oh, we want to build this PAX thing. We did a little design via their online design interface. And they said, oh, you're going to have to go back upstairs to the PAX people. We said, the PAX people? What's that? They sort of explained to us where we might find the PAX people. We go back upstairs, walk our way through the maze of model rooms, and we do find the PAX person, who's a very, very helpful gentleman, who very, very quickly helped duplicate the design that we had put together on the IKEA website. And then he printed us out an itemized list and arranged a delivery date with us and told us, you know, all of the items could be delivered on August 22nd with the exception of one drawer, but we could pick up the drawer today. And he gave us a sheet that would, um, that we would then hand to the cashier and they would get the drawer. So we go downstairs with our itemized list. We go to the cashier and sirens. Uh, the cashier then um, oh so as we're going to the cashier we realize that um, we're not going to be able to do this delivery date because Abrams Art Center is in fact closed on Sundays so the 22nd then became unavailable so we went to the cashier we said oh we we want to place this order, but we just need the delivery date changed. And he said, okay, well, here's what... He'd already at this point scanned the invoice for the drawer. And he said, you can go pick up your drawer over there. We had not yet paid for it. But then we were like, oh, we need to change the pickup date. He said, oh, you're going to have to go back to the... Um, to the information people in the warehouse area we go back to the information people in the warehouse area we say can you please change the delivery date they say yes indeed they change it to a week later we go back to um oh well we wanted to get it changed to like the next day but none of those days were available so we then got it changed to eight days later. So we then go back to um, a different store clerk to pay for our purchases. And um, they start scanning the invoice of all the pieces of the packs and then they get to the drawer that we're meant to pick up. They say, well, this item no longer exists. Well, we say, well, uh, could it be to do with the fact that this paper was already scanned? They say, yes. Also, like, do you want to kill me right now as an audience listening to the Psychia story? I'm so, so sorry. You don't have a choice. It's all I have. So 
We then, um, she brings over a manager who says, you know, this item is now gone. I don't know what to tell you. He's like, but if you go back to the information people and have them print you out another one of these forms with regard to this item, should be fine. We now go back into the warehouse to the information people. And they, um, they say, so sorry, this item is gone. We say, well, this is not possible. Like, where's, where is it between the time when it was scanned initially and now? And, you know, they keep saying, did you, did you pay for it? We say, no, we never paid for it. So, like, so now I'm assuming, oh, God, it got bought. But Harriet, in all her wisdom, was like, I'm sure it was just brought to the pickup area when it was scanned the first time. And um, we're just going to take it for all the trouble that's we've had to deal with at Ikea. So... We now are going back to, we, di- we divide to conquer, right? We go back to, I go back to the um, checkout desk to pay for the pack system. And Harriet walks over to just pick up the drawer. And um, the light at the end of the tunnel was that the drawer was there ready and waiting for us for free. And we paid for all the other items and delivery and... I carried the drawer home, and that was the end to the IKEA drama. But the back and forth was wild. I was like, I don't understand how come these computers don't have the same capabilities. Like, why do we have to keep wandering around this gigantic warehouse to get anything accomplished? Okay, so that's my IKEA story, and. When I got back home, I had to absolutely have a nap. And then I met Stuart for dinner. We had a very nice long meal of discussion and chicken and salmon at uh, Westville, which is not a good restaurant in New York, but I have a location very near to me. And um, it's a very it's a pleasant place to have a meal. I mean, you're not going to get anything particularly delicious but you're gonna get some food and you know you can cover your food groups at Westville which is the nicest thing that I can really say about their food um and I had to order a latte as soon as I arrived Stuart was not yet there and I was like I'm going to sleep through this dinner I think Ikea did a doozy on me but also August is doing a doozy on me I'm sleepy a lot I even had a nap today today Harriet and I did several things in quick succession. I did some studio organization in the morning because obviously you've heard we're revamping various systems. I've ordered many, many uh, velvet hangers to swap out our hanger system. And then Harriet arrived and we uh, we had a fitting. Oh, well, we started work on building this unitard for Liz Gehring piece. And we then had fittings with Shalvon Montero and Jacqueline Harris from Alvin Ailey who came to do fittings for this BAC um, project that we're working on with them and the Cunningham Trust and that fitting went very well and it is such a delight to 
fit such extraordinary human specimens. You know, two of the most physically gifted dancers alive. And so that was good. And then we ran, we got on city bikes and ran over to the opening of James Valoria, our favorite vintage shop in Chinatown, who's having a grand reopening today uh, that Jeremy Jacob, the beloved Jeremy Jacob, um, did the redesign for them and all the hand painting. And I did, I helped Jeremy do some of the painting um, over the past couple weeks in order to stave off um, extreme depression from finishing grad school, which seemed to work. And I mean, all, uh, I mean, the entire space, every surface is like some kind of hand painting that Jeremy did, like the walls, the ceilings, the windows, literally everything. And so, you know, all I did was um, the ceiling in the small room, which was painting all these kind of parabolic curves in shades of red and pink onto, you know, gross acoustic tiles. And I also painted this um, shelving column, you know, one of those like columns with those slats of wood that you can wedge brackets into so you can hang stuff on the brackets, you know, like in a a shop. It's a shop thing. And uh, my job was to paint, they were white, you know, like laminate fake stuff. And I had to just paint them matte black and also paint the cracks, like the interior of those half inch cracks black. So that was actually a somewhat time consuming job, sort of trying to wedge a paintbrush in there and paint all the cork interiors or plywood interiors or whatever they are, particle board. I'm passing Lola Taverna with all the trash people. Trash people, trash people, trash people. Um, it's 81 degrees at 919. <laughs> oh, no. Sad. The earth is on fire. Um, so I painted it matte black and then did a second coat on it so it looked kind of great. And then Jeremy and I uh, marbleized it, in quotations. I mean, we did a very rudimentary marbleization with white paint which actually kind of looked great and then today Harriet and I got on city bikes rushed over to the James Valoria sale which was also um they they were selling off this huge collection of Todd Oldham samples that had been made available to them by Todd's nephew Presley Oldham who's a jewelry designer and Um, I had been able to look through the clothes several days ago and I was just kind of so stunned by the quality and the workmanship and the craft of these clothes, which, you know, are very much outside of my style interests, but my God, they're so fun, so beautiful, so much joy, um, and, uh, extreme craft I mean all of these incredibly hand sequined hand beaded um, beautifully printed fabrics um, all of this kind of like trompe l'oeil stuff uh, it's amazing and you know Todd Oldham has not been um, very present in the fashion world for a long time but 
it was extraordinary to see these sort of museum quality pieces that Todd and his family have now made available to sell. Because I think whatever, whatever else was in the collection of samples and originals, oh, excuse me, um, uh, that needed to be in museum collections, et cetera, had already happened. And then Todd's wish was that the remainder be sold to people to be worn. And a lot of it at very reasonable prices for these one-of-a-kind pieces from the 90s. Um, I turned on the AC. It's really hot. So I wanted Harriet to be able to come and see these clothes to see if there was anything she might want. And so... We got there by noon, which was time of the opening, and already there were many people scavenging the racks. And we did manage to get our hands on many of like the most exciting pieces for Harriet to try on. And I mean, it turned out that though they looked extraordinary on her, they were, you know, a bit expensive. There's like this amazingly hot guy in the apartment um, across the shaftway. <laughs> from me right now who's changing his clothes and just I'm sort of stunned um anyways he's usually just in there tap tap tapping away at a computer but for some reason tonight he's uh changing which is such a thank you thank you person across the way oh he sneezed bless you bless you I think he heard me he didn't I'm kidding um so anyways um, what else can I tell you? Oh, so we got to the Todd Oldham sale and Harriet, uh, tried on a bunch of really great stuff, but you know, much of it was extremely expensive. Um, but she did manage to get some of the more reasonably priced basics. Actually one, she just got one thing, but she almost got two things. She got one pair of great knit black shorts. And, um... Then we rushed back to studio on City Bikes, and, oh, Jack Fervor was also at the sale with Jeremy having, like, a manic episode spending thousands of dollars on, um, clothing <laughs> for himself and others, and that was fun to see Jack and Jeremy, and they brought the dog, who, you know, tried to run away from home this week, so thankfully... Nomi lived and, and understood where she lived and came back home, etc. And, um, anyways, I don't know if you all saw that story on Instagram, but Nomi, Nomi, Nomi got scared and escaped her leash. And then Jeremy had to chase her through Greenpoint for several blocks and thought he'd lost her, but she'd just run back home. She went home, just like in Men Don't Leave, when, when, um, Charlie, is that his name? No, that's the actor's name, Charlie Corsmo. What's the character's name? It's Chris, who play, is played by Chris O'Donnell. Chris and... really should know this, being that it's my favorite movie. Anyways, the younger son, um, at some point in the movie, is just, like, totally freaked out and upset because, you know, his friend doesn't share the lottery winnings with him and he's scared for his mom who's super depressed and poor and so he just figures out a way to get back to the country where you know he grew up um 
So at any rate, that's men don't leave. I'm talking about toddledom. I'm talking about our day. We take the 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 bikes back to work. We have a phone meeting with somebody um, regarding a future job, and then we quickly put together uh, this unitard we'd started in the morning, and then we take that along with its companion unitard to Burjnakov Art Center where we had a fitting. Nancy Dalva was there with Liz and Jamie Scott who's doing rehearsal director duties. The dancers are um, Mariah and Semyon, Semyon Barber, Mariah, Mariah. What's Mariah's last name? Anton? Anton? Um, and they uh, did some of the dance and it was extraordinary and they looked great in the costume so that was we had two very successful fittings today which is good it just means less work moving forward into next week when they're going to film the pieces and then after the fitting Harriet ran home and I went to Sil Thread to pick up some garment bags to organize some Pam Tanowitz costumes from earlier this summer and then I came home, and again, I absolutely had a nap immediately. And then after my nap, I walked myself over to my father and my Yumi's apartment, and I bought flowers along the way that were beautiful at the Korean market. These dahlias in this kind of papaya color, as well as some, like, sort of very pale flowers that look a bit like hay or reeds that grow along the side of a pond. I don't actually know um, what they wear. Uh, I finished White Lotus. I hope you all have watched it. It's such a phenomenal show. Um, that brought me a lot of joy uh, over the past I think I just, I must have watched it over a period of like two or three days. Um I was bummed out, obviously, by the end. It was a bummer. Um, but I think that's that was the point. You know, it was really just like, these are the people who get away with everything, and the rest of us are kind of left to suffer. But really, I mean, who's suffering the most? Like, who's le leading the most shallow and uncertain kind of lives spiritually, right? That's the point. That has to be the point. Um, I wanted to do something this evening before we finish up. Oh, I saw an outside show. Oh, I went to see a performance at Little Island. Um, Russell invited me to be his date to um, a show that Ellie Wallace helped to curate at Little Island, which is the new park on the Hudson River, um, that has all this outdoor programming and the show included a piece by Jody Melnick that was danced by Taylor Stanley and Ned you know I don't know Ned's last name but I just always want to call him Ned Roram but you know as we know that's a composer um, and Shayla V. Jenkins did a beautiful solo Miley Okamura did a performance with her husband Colin. It was beautiful. Um, Jean Butler did an incredible dance. Kyle Marshall did a beautiful dance. Um, a couple... Uh, there was another 
two people I didn't know who they were did something. Anyways, it was a very pleasant show. I saw many people who I know and love, and um, it was just nice to, even if I wasn't looking at the dance, to look out at the river and look across towards faces I have not seen since before the pandemic, and that was just really nice. So I'm going to read you um, a section from my artist book that I wrote some time ago. I don't remember when I wrote it, but it's a section I wrote about fittings, and I thought it would be a nice, uh, a nice way to expand on the things that I did today, which was fittings. Um, and so let me find it in this book that I should know very well. Oh, here it is. Okay. April 24th, 2021. Last night I went to the movies in New York City for the first time since before. My friend Scott asked an amazing question while we were standing in the lobby of Film Forum. What happens in a fitting? It seems like a simple question, but as I started explaining the various tasks that occur in a fitting, I realized that this topic is a whole book. My life in the fitting room, navigating disordered minds. What happens in a fitting? Fittings take on many forms. I've had fittings with dancers in dance studios, hallways, public bathrooms, cafes, my apartment, my aunt's house, countless dancers' homes, parks, and under the best circumstances in the Reed and Harriet studio or in a proper fitting room. A fitting room is a curtained off area or a room in a costume shop where there's usually one mirrored wall and racks for hanging costumes that await a body. There's often something soft to stand on, like a rug or a cushioned mat to protect the dancer's bare feet. There'll be an assortment of small tables with boxes of safety pins, marking chalk, and various other pens and pencils for note-taking and drawing on fabric. There's usually a chair or two for waiting around between fittings, and New York City Ballet has a sofa in one of the two side-by-side -side fitting rooms where you can lounge under a rack of upside-down tutus when a dancer cancels and you have an hour to kill before fittings. New York City Ballet also has track lighting that faces away from the mirror and toward the dancer to imitate stage lights. That way you can see if the flecks of metallic and the gray fabric you chose will show. They won't. They never do. Broad strokes are key in costume design. Sometimes you have to learn the hard way. There is almost never a window. This is a private place. Dancers are notified that they'll be needed in fittings on the company schedule. There's usually a little side area on the Excel spreadsheet that's designated for fittings. I was very irresponsible about remembering fittings when I was in ballet companies. I generally had to be hunted down by costume shop staff or reminded by another dancer that I was late to or had missed a fitting entirely. It's not because I dreaded fittings. I actually liked them. They were a welcome break from the abusive rehearsal studio and I'd often stay long after the actual fitting was over to ask questions and avoid going back to rehearsal. The costume shop was clearly a much more civilized place than the dance studio. Costume shops are frequently an assemblage of obsessive compulsive women who either work silently at their stations or gossip about dancers in the company. There's almost never verbal abuse or inappropriate behavior in the costume shop. It's an entirely different vibe from the sweaty infantilizing culture of the dance studio just next door or downstairs. So now that you can sort of visualize the space, this is a generic rundown of what happens. The dancer enters the shop. 
usually slightly sweaty from rehearsal or sleepy from lunch. The cutter, who's responsible for their costume, joins them in the fitting room and helps them into the costume. At this point, we, the designers, are patiently waiting outside the fitting room. We sometimes pass the time by chatting with a costume shop manager or looking at some other costumes that we didn't design. After two minutes or so, we're invited into the room. The dancer usually gives you a what-do-you-think look through the mirror. This is when you have to cut through the tension in the room coming from the cutter and the dancer and maybe even the costume shop manager, costume shop manager who are all waiting to see if you like it. You do this by addressing things that need changing. We address the neckline, the hem lengths, the volumes, the proportions, the construction, etc. The cutter follows closely with safety pins or other forms of marking implements, taking note of the corrections and pinning out fabric where it's not wanted. Then we ask the dancer to move around. We want to see how the costumes move and if they function well. At that point, there's generally discussion around the immediate future of the costume. What steps will be taken to correct it and what state it should be in for the next fitting? Photos are taken from multiple angles and we leave the room so the cutter can help the dancer out of the costume. And there you have it. A great deal of emergence, oh sorry, a great deal of energy gets leached out during the part where everyone is waiting for you to make decisions on the spot. I sometimes forget that a day of fittings is incredibly exhausting because it involves very little moving around, though it is mentally and emotionally draining. The emotional drain is the most interesting part of the whole affair. Dancers, designers, cutters, and management all have to cooperate and agree at a million junctures on the journey to a finished costume. Someone's bound to be upset along the way. Designers get sad when they're told they cannot use the fabrics they originally wanted. Management gets furious when designers ask to make a big revision late in the process. Cutters get upset when they've constructed the garment in the way that the designer drew it, but it somehow feels wrong. And dancers are upset because they're entering into a room with years of emotional trauma and disordered thinking about their own body, which is the subject of extreme scrutiny in a costume fitting. Dancers will let you know when they don't like the costume. They won't say it. That would be rude. They slouch and pout and squirm and pull at the costume as if it is irritating their skin. This generally happens with more experienced dancers who've reached their limit of being skilled lab rats for choreographers and designers. And it's okay. It's really hard to verbally express concern, dislike, and discomfort when you've never been invited to participate in a discussion about what will be happening to your body. We once tried to genderqueer a costume by putting a male dancer in what would normally be a woman's leotard, and we were met with an immediate outburst of straight male insecurity. It was painful to watch, and we immediately shifted course so that this dancer would not have to com have a complete nervous breakdown. It's usually not worth it to torture a dancer into something that makes them feel ugly or scared or sad. It's hard to dance in a costume that you don't believe in. Some dancers will create problems that don't exist because it shifts the power dynamic. It is, it is one time where how they feel will have an effect. There's one famous dancer who does this regularly, seemingly to torture the people who make her clothes. Her performance of discomfort and fittings is iconic. She'll become fitful over the tightness of a leotard leg or the width of a strap. She gets away with it because of her star status, and I think it gives her a sense of control in a field where her career is still controlled by artistic management. Dancers are generally polite in fittings. 
They tiredly gaze at their almost nude reflection while a team of people make decisions regarding the next-to-nothing garment on their body. Sometimes that will involve long periods of standing still while we draw lines onto their body to indicate a seam line or the placement of a print. The only thing separating the pen and our hands from their bodies is a sheath of lycra or stretch mesh. I feel very sensitive to this, especially when I have to draw over a breast or genital. I ask permission and generally apologize for such actions before they happen. It's important to warn someone before you draw on their balls. I think people imagine that fittings are a sexy affair. They almost never are. They're sometimes fun, but generally it's all business. When you have 10 to 15 minutes to shape your work and direct multiple minds helping to execute this, execute this kind of editing, there really isn't much time for fun and f flirting. I was once on my own for a fitting with Roberto Bollet, and though I'll never forget safety pinning Lycra out of a very upper part of his tights inseam, it was not a sexy moment. I struggled to pinch out fabric from very close to his crotch because his thigh flesh was rock hard and made grasping the slippery fabric close to, close to impossible. The reference photos would allude to it having been a far less embarrassing experience than it actually was. Things generally go to plan, but on occasion, fittings are full chaos. Those are the ones I remember most. The first time we worked with a shop of a famous American ballet company that I won't name, we were happy to walk into a space that looked very professionally managed. The workshop was immaculate, and the construction technicians were in lab coats. It was a little over the top, but it seemed like we were in good hands. The shop manager was beyond dramatic. She brought herself to tears, recounting past projects and describing, describing her extensive collection of sewing machines. The first fitting for a new work was scheduled for several dancers. This is unusual, but we were happy to accommodate the requests of an unfamiliar shop. We were suddenly confronted with six dancers dressed in varying levels of horrible. It was a really scary moment for Harry and me. It was the first time we had worked with this company, and we were surrounded by the choreographer, the shop manager, various costume technicians, and six principal dancers dressed in some frightening home sewing disaster. Where to begin? One very kind dancer looked across to her fellow female principal and said, Ooh, you look amazing, to which I immediately said, No. To be confronted by one badly executed costume is scary, and to be looking at six at once was a total nightmare. We had to demonstrate the urgency of our concern without being rude, while also reassuring the choreographer that this was not how the costumes would look. This is not the last confusing fitting we'd have for this production. What are very simple, symmetrical designs would be presented at second fittings with glaring asymmetries, and our last round of fittings for this large group dance was essentially a cattle call. We were stationed in the green room of some strange theater and dancers were lined up and paraded in front of us for a final round of corrections. It was truly crazy, and I have a headache just thinking about it. There are many more stories to tell of strange and chaotic fittings, but the vast majority I've, have been rote and forgettable. I've learned a lot of the secrets of dance construction from cutters and shop managers during my time in fittings, but mostly... I've learned about navigating groups of people feeling vulnerable for different reasons all at once. That's the real work of a fitting. A day of fittings is a physically and mentally taxing affair. I try to keep myself from letting it be emotionally taxing, but that's usually unavoidable. Fittings are a demonstration of care for all parties involved, caring for the people who've given their time and skill to bring the designs to life, 
caring for the person wearing the garment, and caring for Harriet, the work, and myself. And that's my essay on fittings. Apologies for some of my little hiccups, but I'm just, you know, trying to read a PDF document at 9.41. It's also good to do that because I'm noticing some typographic errors, which seem to be um, endless. Um, what else can I say? What's happening in the weeks to come? We're finishing up this project next week that we're working on for BAC. And um, then I'll be heading to Texas for fittings for a ballet Austin piece. Be nice to go somewhere else. I should probably go out to see my mom this weekend. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll do more readings from my various essays um, as the weeks move on the podcast. And hopefully I'll have a guest at some point. Um, I hope you're all doing well. I hope you're staying cool wherever you are. I hope you're not in a fire. I hope you're not in Afghanistan. And if you are, I, um, I wish you the best. I mean, I don't know what to say. It's really heartbreaking. Um, can you imagine if I had a listener in Afghanistan? That'd be incredible. Um... What more to say? Oh, I went to the movies with Zach Gonder and David Harvey over the weekend, and we saw Black Widow. Um, it was fine. I I was so incredibly distracted through the whole movie by um, an extremely drunk older gentleman who was there with his friend. Um, and it was kind of, like, amusing to hear someone having such a good time at the movies, but it also made it impossible to watch and concentrate on the movie. And one of the other moviegoers was angry enough to go and get the management who tried their best to quiet this person, but did not ask them to leave. So um, this person sat in four or five different places around the theater, I think in an attempt to quiet themselves, imagining that if they separated themselves from their friend, they'd be quieter. But it did not work. And when they weren't talking, they were opening um, various foods wrapped in tinfoil to make, you know, just a different kind of noise. Um, but there you have it. After the movie was over, I went to the management and I asked that we get vouchers and they obliged because it was undeniable what had happened to all of us. I'm surprised they didn't offer vouchers to everybody in the movie. Um, so I guess I'm going to go to the movies again. I hope you don't have COVID right now, but I'm not surprised if you do. The Delta variant is running wild here in New York. I know several people who've gotten it. And I'm really sorry to my friends at the Australian Ballet whose seasons have been postponed um, because of some COVID. It's really just a way of life at this point, isn't it, for all of us? Um, anyways, I wish you well. It was lovely seeing you today, Nancy, and I'm sure I'll see you. I'll see you probably before you hear this. Uh, we live, we laugh, we love. Um, 
and I'll see you next time. Have a good night.